Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. The history of the early church. And we're back in the book of Acts. We kind of took a bit of a break for a minute. And today we're going to talk about the fear of God fell. The fear of God and the fact that it fell. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read from Acts 4 verse 32 to chapter 5. Verse 11. Now, verse 32, chapter 4. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the, possess- of part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes. For so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church. And upon all who heard these things. 
Father, I pray this morning, this afternoon, that you would make this message as real today as the floor that I'm standing on. Amen. <clears throat> the last time we were in the book of Acts proper was about a month ago. And we considered the importance of appreciating these three principles in our approach to the scriptures. One observation, meaning what does it say? Two, interpretation, meaning what does it mean? And three, application, what does it mean to us? And what we did then was we highlighted the third, which is application. What does it mean to us? As we continue to journey through this amazing book, we must be careful to not get caught sightseeing. Now, we need to see the sights and we need to appreciate them, but not just because they look good or they're exciting. As much as there are wonderful things to behold, there are important lessons to learn, there are principles to apply, and there are warnings that we need to heed. And all of these relate to us in some significant way, particularly in our culture. Because in our culture, we have a couch potato type mentality, where we sit in front of the TV or the computer and we veg out. Hours and hours and hours pass by as we give ourselves or give our attention to sightseeing. I mean, they call it, what do they call it? When you go over the internet, you, you surf, surf in the internet. And what do they call it when you've got the remote control and you're searching, channel hopping, surfing and hopping, moving, right? But you ain't going nowhere. Sitting in the front of the TV or computer and vegging out, and it's indicative of a lazy, overweight individual, spiritually speaking. Some studies have said that the couch potato lifestyle is a serious health hazard. In the UK, even the Prime Minister has a strategy unit attempting to combat the couch potato culture. Encouraging involvement in sports. Research suggests that being a couch potato, check this. Research suggests that being a couch potato could make a person a decade older biologically than someone who is physically active. Entertainment. This word has taken on a whole new meaning. Home cinema sales have gone through the roof. 
large screen TVs. I mean, DVDs have been taken over by Blu-ray, right? Now, now Blu-ray's amazing. Sometimes, if you ain't got it, you walk in Dixon's and you see the big tellies and you look and you think, whoa. It looks like you're looking out the window because the images are so sharp. You're like, whoa. It's Blu-ray. Now, it's like, how many of you thought that DVD was heavy? How many of you thought that back in the day, video was heavy? <laughs> how many of you are old enough to remember that TV was heavy. <laughs> See, we don't have to go to the cinema anymore. And we don't want to have to do anything. We just want to be comfortable and cozy. And the problem is, if that type of attitude begins to seep into our Christianity, we're finished. That is just sightseeing. That is just wanting to be entertained. Show me something new. See, if that begins to seep into our mentality, you come to church, you'll be like, who's, who's teaching today? Who's preaching today? Oh, what, one of them three? Oh. I thought we might have had someone new, someone fresh and exciting. If that's your mentality, that shows that you've come to be entertained. And if the entertainment ain't, if it ain't glitzy enough, if it ain't glamorous enough, if it ain't exciting enough, then we just go, we just take that, that DVD out or we just put another one in. Or we just go, find, go, go to another church and find someone or somewhere that's a bit more exciting, somewhere that's a bit more comfortable, in order that we might be entertained. Lethargy. Last time you may remember me mentioning a few different people who have given up everything. Friends, family, house, car, job, everything, and they left. And they went somewhere where they had nothing. Yet they went in order that, not that they might be entertained, but in order that they might do something. And that's what we got to get. We, we have to appreciate that as believers that we're not just here for me, for us. See what I'm saying? We talked about individuals who had given up everything to go into full-time ministry, specifically church planting. About which I have a lot to say, but not today. Individuals who went through radical change. And we find ourselves having seen this same type of drastic, dramatic, dynamic change in the lives of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. You're opening Acts 5. Look back at chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled because these men... One of the same brothers that they saw hanging around behind Jesus. 
back in the day, a couple weeks or a couple months or a year or two ago. But they do realize that they had been with Jesus. But these now, all of a sudden, there's something different about them. There's been a radical change. And these men, after being pressured, intimidated, and victimized, they congregate with the other disciples and they pray in verse 29 saying, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they, that is, we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had as were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This book will teach us. It will teach us important lessons Important lessons to learn, principles to apply, and warnings that we must heed. Don't be caught spectating. So let's go. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now... This was by choice and not by command. This was by choice and not by command. The disciples didn't command these new believers to share their possessions as a legal requirement. They weren't forced to do this. This wasn't and isn't some sort of Christian communism where you walk in and you ain't got nothing and you expect someone who's got something to give you something. Now, I'm not saying it ought not to happen. Because if someone has got something and you ain't got nothing, then they ought to give you something. The problem is coming in and expecting it. See, what was happening here was just a byproduct of this experience of new life. It's not something that was forced upon or thrust upon them. And it wasn't necessarily everyone giving away everything. But as we shall see in a moment, it was those who had given to those who didn't have. The same as in Acts chapter 2 when it says that they were all in one accord. They, were ha they had one heart and one soul. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Fulfill my joy... By being what? Like-minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord. And one mind. Oh, that's not right. Sorry. One heart and one soul. See, they loved each other. And they were all on the same wavelength. Evidently, it was a work of the Spirit. And we see the, the fullness of the Spirit manifest in deed as well as word. Oh, that's right. Huh. We see the fullness of the Spirit manifest in deed as well as word, in service as well as witness, in love for the family 
as well as testimony to the world. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We saw clearly last time, and also in previous weeks, where Peter declared the truth with great boldness. Great power. And it says, and great grace was upon them all. God was answering prayers for boldness, accompanied by many earthquake type confirmations. There are amazing responses to the preaching of the gospel. Many are being saved. God was answering prayers for healing in astounding ways. We will again see this clearly later on. Great grace, great favor was upon them all. You know those weeks when the Lord just seems to answer all of your prayers? The way that you would like him to. Great grace. He just overcomes. Ah, oh, Lord, you're just so good. And his blessing is evident in your life. Before you get too excited, it's seasonal, isn't it? <laughs> you just have to enjoy it while it lasts. Verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Check it. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here we are briefly introduced to someone who would become a very, very important character in this book and also in the development of the early church. And notice it was those who had lands or houses to sell. People given according to what they had, not according to what they didn't have. And I mention this because so many crooked preachers today are forcing people to give what they don't have. Make a pledge. Make a vow. I mean, you don't have to make a pledge because at the moment you can't do it. I promise. Make a vow. And write it down as an IOU and put your name on it and date it so that we can come back to you in a month and say, hey, remember you said you was going to and then lay a burden on you. Being basically encouraged to sow seed that doesn't belong to you. Individuals who encourage people to sow seed that doesn't belong to them. They have to go borrow that seed. People are forced to take out loans and give via, not switch, but give via credit, by visa credit card, even to the degree of remortgaging their, their homes. This is not right. Also notice the offerings are distributed by the apostles. They're not acquired by the, amen? They're not acquired by the apostles for their own financial benefit and personal upward mobility. 
Now, you know that's, that's a horse that I can flog, right? <laughs> so, see, let's get, let's get back to the overwhelming point being made here, and it's the generosity of the saints. One to another. John Calvin wrote, We must have hearts harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We, in our day, are content not jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. And it's one thing if you're a Christian and you do that. It's another thing if you're a Christian leader and you do that. They sold their possessions in those days, yet in our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. How can we say we love God if we can't love our brother or our sister that we can see and you can't see God? Okay, chapter 5. Remember... Remember that chapters and verses are not, are not a part of the original text. They were added at a later date. The purpose of the common division into chapters and verses was to facilitate reference. If the chapters and verses weren't there, but if I said turn to this portion of the text, you may find it by the time we're leaving church, right? That's why, they, that's why I think Paul talks about searching the scriptures. Because that's what they had to do back then. Because there were no chapters and verses, no divisions. So they're there particularly in order to facilitate reference. The process of which started in the 13th century but was completed in the 16th century. Now here we have a classic example of an unhelpful chapter break. An unhelpful chapter division. Very often chapter divisions tend to be very beneficial but frequently misleading. Between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, the thought continues. So we are looking at a related thought block, a block of thoughts that are really supposed to be together, albeit with a conjunction that is the but in chapter 5, verse 1. So Barnabas, the great guy that he was, sold some land. And with pure intentions brought the money from the sale to the apostles. But someone else does the same thing, it seems, but for completely different reasons. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a position. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is in contradistinction to chapter 4, verse 34 to 37. Verse 2, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and his wife, like Barnabas, also sell some land, right? For a certain amount. There are some teachers, preachers, quote-unquote, who would take this text and draw the biggest offering for the year. And they abuse the text. 
chatting about, huh? All right, we took up, we just done took up the offering. What, 15, 20 minutes ago? And you gave. But how much did you give? Did you give all of that which the Lord laid on your heart? Or did you give a part of it? I'm telling you. I mean, you've probably been there and experienced it. I know I have. And if you ain't, trust me. It's happening right now as we speak. Where people are being, people are taking the word of God and twisting it in order for their own means. I said I weren't going to flog that horse, right? So Ananias and his wife also sell some land for a certain amount, right? Completely legal, completely above board. But notice in verse 2 that they in concert or in agreement together deceitfully keep back a portion of the sale price. Given the appearance that they were laying down the full purchase price, right? Apparently wanting to be viewed like Barnabas as extremely generous. Hey, Deirdre, did you hear about what happened the other day? No? Go on. Tell me what happened. Well, you know that good-looking young man, the one from Cyprus, the one they all call a son of encouragement? Oh, you mean Barnabas? Yeah, that's the one. Apparently, he had some land that he put up for sale. And then when he sold it, he gave all proceeds to church. Ooh, what a nice man. Ooh, a very nice man. Ooh, a very, very nice man. So all of this kind of business is going on, right? Ananias and Sapphira, now want, they want some of that. Some of what? They want some of that exaltation or some of that public praise. The public applause. But Peter, exercising the gifts of the Spirit, whether it be discernment or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, check it. It's wonderful to see you giving, brother. It's wonderful to see your consistent giving and such generous giving. No, Peter don't say that, does he? Let's put your name on a plaque. Let's put your name up on the website as an individual who gave. Apparently in some churches they got gold, silver and bronze givers. Let's put your name up as a silver giver. Huh. Guess what? We've introduced a new category and it's platinum giving. Maybe next time you, you'll be up there with the platinum givers. No, he doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say that. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your... Come on now, Peter. How are you going to be so harsh with the brother? At least he's giving. I mean, if you know, holy people in church don't give. At least he's giving, Peter. Peter's not having it. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you, check it, 
The Bible doesn't use words aimlessly. Look at the next word. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Do you see where this sin of deceit, do you see where this sin starts? Do you see where this sin is conceived? First in the heart. James says, that's the book of James, says that we are caused or led to sin when we are drawn away of our, by our lust and we are enticed. Now we haven't sinned yet. That is when you're being drawn away. When you're drawn away of your lust and you're in time, you haven't sinned yet. How many of you know you're on a slippery slope? How many of you know the process has started? And it's like a sperm being released that makes its way down the fallopian tubes, down through the cervix, down the fallopian tube. No, the fallo- no, the egg comes down the fallopian tube. That's- The egg comes down the fallopian tube and sits in the womb and the sperm travels up the cervix up towards the womb, right? You see, we're talking about conception, right? Now, the process of being drawn away by your sin and enticed is like a sperm making its way toward that egg making its way down to that unfertilized egg. Now, does this sound like heresy? Be like, this is bio- biology, not heresy. <laughs> That's right, this is biology. Turn to James chapter 1. For those of you who ain't got your Bible, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, are you there? Say amen, loud. Amen. amen. All right. Verse 13, James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, watch. But each one is tempted. You ain't sinned yet. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then... When? Then, when desire has what? Conceived. Then it gives birth to sin. When it is full grown, brings forth death. Conception. When you are drawn away by your own desires and you begin to feed those desires, you may not necessarily at this point yet have sinned. David, he didn't end up in Bathsheba's bed like, oh, how did I get here? It didn't didn't start there. It was a process that started way before that night. And the issue is understanding the process. Because if you can understand the process, trust me. You won't spend half your time repenting over sin, thinking, how did I end up here again? When you begin to understand the process, like Eve in the garden, how many of you know, she sinned when she bit the fruit. But how many of you know there was a process that led to her consuming that fruit? 
Let me tell you, as I tell myself, if you or I spend too much time in that forbidden area, you'll be like, but I haven't done anything. Yeah, but you want to. And even if you don't want to, and you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. You're still sitting there. If you spend too much time in that forbidden area, it's like the sperm swimming down towards that egg. It's like that sperm swimming down to that fertile egg. Entertaining those lusts and the desires. You're in the process of being tempted. And you know, once that sperm meets that egg, what takes place? Conception. And once conception takes place, you know what you're going to have in nine months' time. You are going to have a baby. Something is going to... We're not talking about babies. We're not talking about the biological process of children being created. No. We're talking about the process, the spiritual process of sin being birthed. Once the, you know, once the process starts, I tell you, how many of you know you kind of begin to entertain stuff? And it's easier to get out sooner rather than later. Because if you allow it to continue, you get to a point where, hey, you can't control yourself. You go beyond the point of no return, right? And again, remember, I'm not just talking about sex. Even though that's the, it's the bangingest, it's the, it's the best example. Something is going to be birthed. Once conception takes place, something is going to be birthed. It's just a matter of time. And you keep looking at that woman lustfully. You keep looking at those magazines. You keep looking at the triple X rated blue movies. You keep looking at internet pornography. Guess what is happening? Well, you are in the process. And you're dangerously swimming around that fertile egg. And it's just a matter of time. The only thing, once conception takes place, the only thing that you lack now, if you've allowed that process to take its course in your heart, the only thing that you're lacking now is opportunity. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because the devil, like Eve in the garden, deceives us. He says, do not be deceived, James chapter 1, verse 16. And look who he's talking to. You're not talking to people that don't know God. You're not talking about people who ain't got the spirit. He's talking about Christians. He says, be not deceived, my beloved brethren. And you know, the same is true for murder. Don't foster hate or bitterness for anyone. Because if you do, you could easily end up murdering them. 
And what did the Lord Jesus say about murder and sexual sin? Where does it begin? In the heart. You'd be like, murder? What? You remember Cain? See, don't allow hatred to foster. Because you end up like Cain. You remember the Lord said in Genesis chapter 4, he says, Cain, beware. Beware because sin is where? It's in close proximity. Cut it off right now while you can, Cain. It's in close proximity. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is to master you, but you must master it. That is the explanation for David committing murder. Like, how could David do that? Well, you can see how he could do that. Because once he was on that, once he was in the process and he'd gone past the point of no return, David could easily commit murder. Why? Because it was sin had already conceived. Now here comes the act. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now flip back to Acts chapter 5, verse 3. If you never kept your finger in there. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? Like leaven, you know. See the strategy of Satan? Ananias, the devil has planted something in your heart. And you have now allowed it to fill your heart. You see the process again? One seed. How I many of you know you sow a seed, you come back in, in a short space of time, that seed has now grown into a plant that now has many seeds, that has fruit on it that has seeds in them that have fruit in those seeds when they get planted bear more fruit and more fruit you get a harvest are you ready for that kind of harvest in your life he says ananias the devil he planted the seed in your heart and you you allowed it now to fill your heart like leaven why because of your own pride wanting the exaltation and the glory because of your own greed, wanting to keep back some of the money, your own pride and greed drew you away. You were drawn away by your own lust and enticed and sin conceived and you end up lying to God. Didn't you realize... Weren't you aware of what you were doing? Didn't you see that? No. Why? Because you were deceived. See? And Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says exactly the opposite. Don't be deceived. Yet, if you are... Sorry for you. God is not mocked. 
Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And again, you sow one seed, you get back a harvest. You don't get back what you sowed. You get back more than what you sowed. That's why we've got to sow good, amen? The principle is the same. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. And God determines to make an example of this hypocrisy in Acts chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Ananias was pretending that things were one way when they were not. Question, do you do this? Making out that things are one way when really in your heart they are another. Hypocrisy. Same as pretending or play acting like someone on stage dressed up as another. You see people on stage, they're acting. They're playing a role that's not them. So if you know, if you know someone who's an actor and you go see them at a West End theatre and you see them with a cigarette in their mouth, you're not surprised, even though they don't smoke. Why? Because they're acting. You know that that is not them. So you don't see them and you come off and you're like, boy, I'm a bit concerned about you, you know. <laughs> when did you start smoking? No, you know they're acting, right? Now, I don't, I'm not saying that that endorses that, because I think if you're a Christian, there are certain things you're not going to do as an actor. Amen. Hypocrisy, pretending, play acting, like someone on stage dressed up as another. You have not lied to men, but to God. If this is you this morning, I fear for you. That is, you're an actor. Maybe not full time, maybe part time. I fear for you. And you do it because you get away with it. And the fact that you get away with it gives you a false sense of security. If this is something that you identify in your life, I beg you, repent. At best, at best, you're a Christian committing sin. A woman or a man after God's own heart, like David. And just like the prophet Nathan, the Holy Spirit is confronting you this afternoon. And he's saying, repent. And think about it. David was the king. Talk about running the risk of being humbled or embarrassed. 
How hard was it when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan to admit that he was wrong? How He's the king. I mean, kings in the past have had men decapitated for that. How, how dare you confront me? You see, and they, they, make the, they, they hide the issue and make something else the issue. How dare you stand before me and challenge me? And how many of you know that's the attitude of a lot of people in authority? And not just outside in the world, but also in the church. People with authority like, what? You're going to come and question me? Yeah, yeah, well... I thought it was necessary. I mean, you're only sleeping with women in the church. I thought it, it might be necessary that I stand up and I speak to you because you're embezzling funds. Talk about you go and use the church credit card for your own personal aggrandizement. I just thought I'd just mention it. How? D- you know what? I t- I've seen it with my own eyes and I heard it with my own ears. I'm not talking about something that's happening out there that I heard somebody's talk about. It's not second or third hand. And David's the king, and I've got to give ratings to Nathan to step into him and the courage. He must have swallowed hard. I thought, (laughs) see? Because David was supposed to be an example, how embarrassing and humbling, and he was humbled. He, at that moment... If he hadn't up until then, because that's what sin is. Sin is deceptive, right? It clouds your vision. If he didn't up until then, now he has an epiphany. And his eyes are open. And David knew that he had sinned. That at that moment, it wasn't Nathan, but it was God that was speaking to him. You are not the king. Or the queen. And you possibly are not even a leader. And because of that, you think that it's okay. You think that you can get away with it. And furthermore, no one ought to confront you. Well, you know what? You're idiotic if you think that no one can't tell me nothing. You're just like Ananias, who, during a conversation with Peter, could have interjected at any time and said, you know what, Peter, I don't know what was going through my mind. But you see, the problem is sin had already conceived. Look at how many opportunities God gave David. Do you remember when you read through 1 Samuel? David would be like to the servant, go and get that, that wench. No, he never said that. Go and get Bathsheba for me. I'm just saying that was his attitude, right? Go and get her for me. And the servant's like, yo, what you mean her? He's like, yeah, what? Uriah's wife. Remember? See, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to a brother. Be like, hey, I mean, that must have just echoed like in the Grand Canyon. Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife. In his heart, in his thinking. But the brother's so hard hearted at that point, he ain't trying to hear that. 
He done stopped having his time of devotion with the Lord a long time ago. Because the process had started before then. Look at how, watch. Look at how many questions Peter asks Ananias. Look at verse 3. Question 1. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Pause. That was an opportunity for Ananias to say, oh, you, know, you know what, bruv? Well, it never really went like that still, but what do you mean? This money that you brought, you actually held some back and you... Man, I feel so embarrassed to say that. Now, what, what do you think Peter would have said to him? I wonder what God would have said to Adam when he confronted him and said, Yo, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Pause. I, I wonder what would have happened. Question 2, verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? Pause. How many of you know this is the grace of God at work right here? Question three. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Pause. And question four. And he's still going to give him a chance. Question four. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And question, question four is really the answer to the problem. Question four is the answer to question four. It's already conceived. So many opportunities to make things right, but no. The devil has got the better of Ananias, who I would suggest is a believer. No. Ananias firms it. Ananias stiff arms the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, if you know the Holy Spirit ain't going to make you do anything. He will, he will confront you like Balaam with his sword, like the angel with his sword drawn. He will confront you and make you know that what you're doing is wrong. A lie? If you're a believer, can I get a witness? In your heart, you know the Lord is saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But no, stiff-necked. You know, stiff-necked, you know what that means, right? You're walking in one direction, the Lord says, yo! And you act like you don't hear. Why? Because you're stiff-necked. You're not trying to look around and say, yeah? Because you know the moment you say, yeah, you're going to have to stand up and give some sort of reasoning for where, where are you going. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in, not just in ears. Where? Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Firms it. Stiff-arms the conviction of the Spirit. Then Peter makes a statement. And they are the very last words that Ananias ever hears. Before his heart stopped beating for the last time. And then, particularly Sapphira. She weren't no better. Verse 7. Come on like Adam and Eve. 
or even Adam in reverse order. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. Huh, not privy to what was going on. I'm surprised that the news never carried. I wonder where she was and what she was doing that she never heard, but she don't know what's going on. Or for, check it, for a few hours, maybe she was in hiding. Why? Because for a few hours, she is bearing the burden of this lie. This falsehood, carrying it around, fostering it, and cultivating it in the dark somewhere. Cultivating and creating an environment for fertilization. And Peter had answered her, tell me. Watch, him, watch, him give her, watch the Holy Spirit give her opportunity. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Pause. It'd be like, please, please, just tell me. I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you an opportunity. Please tell me whether you, you sold the land for so much. See how... He gives her opportunity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says, With every temptation, there is a way of escape. Tell me, please. Because I just saw God drop the sword of Damocles on your husband. Please tell me. Her heart, how many of you know, must have been pounding. I mean, what a, que what a question to ask. He hit the nail. I mean, what a question to ask. And she said, Yes. For so much. Uh -uh. It's the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. And Peter said to her, verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Then again, Peter literally makes his closing statement. And she hears every single word in this closing statement and could have interjected at any point, but no. Look, Peter says, and I presume she did. That is, look. With her heart beating and all of her vital organs operating, with her eyes fully functional, she looks at the door through which the young men will come who, within seconds, will carry out her completely lifeless body. Look, says Peter, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Now that's scary. Not just the fact that God can see the heart. I mean, that's enough to make you terrified. You stand up and you say one thing and God knows, hey, you liar. 
That's not what you think about that sister. That's not what you think about that brother. That's not where you was last night. That's... Right? It's scary just, the, just knowing the fact that God knows and can see the heart. But not just... Look, this is scary. Not just because he can reveal it to a brother or a sister or a pastor or a preacher. You know why this is scary? Triple scary. When you see the possible implications. Just, just, just for lying. Let's remember that God can see the heart. And then God can reveal it to others. And even in that you see a process. And then someone will expose it. And it's all the grace of God. Even this morning. If you're in sin. All of this is God's grace. This is goodness. Take the way of escape. Quickly. Quickly. Look at the possible implications. It's scary. Just for lying. I could drop dead in front of this pulpit and my wife and my kids would have to carry me out. The Lord could kill you in your seat. In a moment. And we have to call the ambulance and the paramedics have to come in and stretcher you out. I mean, it would be funny if it weren't so serious. Now, all of that is at best. You're a believer and, you're, and you find yourself in this process that leads to sin. You're a believer. That's at best. At worst, at worst, you are not a genuine Christian, but a false convert. I'm going to keep my head down for this. You're not saved. Jesus isn't your Lord. You don't have the Spirit. And God isn't your Father. Your Father is the devil. And the things that he does, you do. It's your lifestyle practice. It's the habit of a lifetime. It's your way of life. And one day, Jesus said these same things to a group of outwardly religious people. And he says, I know that you are the sons of Abraham. But if you were the sons of Abraham. You hear that? I know you're the sons of Abraham. But if you were the sons of Abraham. And you see these implications throughout the scriptures. Scripture says... Take heed how you hear. Luke chapter 8, verse 18. It's not in my notes, but I just want us to read it. Luke chapter 8, verse 18. I gave you an example of the fact that the scriptures littered with instances like this. These verses, what they do is, they cause individuals who are, you know, Jesus said, 
The disciples said, Lord, in that parable, someone has sown bad seed in the vineyard or in the field. Shall we go and pull up the bad ones? The Lord says, no, don't pull them up. Leave them, let them grow along with the good. When they grow, at the end, the angels will weed them out. It's not your job to weed them out. But there are verses that make reference to the fact that there are wheat, there are tares among the wheat. Right? Let them go together. And this is one of them. Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore, take heed how you, what? How you hear. Right? It's not even talking about what you do yet. Take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. To who? To him who has. Watch this. And whosoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. There are individuals who seem to have salvation. But they don't have salvation. But it seems like, because they walk in and they say, hey, what's going on, brother? You're like, hey, what's going on, sis? In other words, we go to church. I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, we say, we think. Now, the Bible says in Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. It's not my job to, job to judge unless it's blatantly apparent. Hey, you're living in sexual immorality like for the past two years. Something's wrong. The, the scripture says the Lord knows those who are his. Let them that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Or you will get... What they get in Matthew chapter 7 on the day of judgment. Oh, you chose not to depart from your sin. Therefore, you who are calling me Lord, Lord, you depart from me. It's either you depart from your sin or the Lord will tell you to depart from him on that day. And it's those who seem to have. It's the parable of the sower. My favorite parable. I keep referring to that and say we're going to look at that one day. We will one day. But back to where we are. Jesus says, I know you're the seed of Abraham, but if you were the seed of Abraham. John chapter 8. Did I tell you to turn there? Verse 37. Starting at verse 37. I don't know if you can see the screen, but Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. But you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father who's God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if. And that's another thing you see throughout scripture. We ain't got time to look at that. If. If God were your father. It's one of them little big words. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You 
are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? You see, the inference is none of them could convict him of, his, of, of sin. Verse 47, he who, check it, he or she who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear. Why? Because you are not of God. If you're not of God, let me say it this way. If you're of God, you will hear this word like I heard it as I was looking at it. I had no intentions. I wanted to finish chapter 5 today until the Holy Spirit arrested me and had me over the ringers. The only benefit of a Sunday morning is I can come and say it confidently because <laughs> I've already done my repenting. You get me? But oh Lord Jesus, oh. Thank God for forgiveness because once, you, once you're forgiven, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, the righteous are as bold as lions. But I'm the same as you. It's just that I, you're getting a bit later. See, if you're a believer, you will hear that this this morning and you'll be like, hmm. You begin to search the files in your mind, right? You'll be like, shh, wow. The Thursday night of this retreat last week, we had a night around a fire darkness look up you see the stars like millions of them and we had a time just of prayer and pastor raf said you know what let's just take this as a moment as an opportunity for us to come and surrender things to god that we know are an issue between between us and we took that time about an hour just everybody just confessing their sins and i was going i was searching through the files in my mind and i'd be like hmm i can't really find nothing to confess you know, back in the day, you know, like when you first become a Christian, and it's like everything you think, say, and do is a sin. You know what I mean? And you be like, oh, at the end of the night, you can't even get to sleep because of the, the, the list that you have to confess, right? And you'd be like, it'd be like double-clicking on a folder on your desktop that's so full, it takes ages to open. You can go make a cup of tea and come back, and that file ain't opened yet. That's the size of the file of your sins that you need to confess, right? And I'll be like, mm, Lord, I don't even feel like I've got anything I need to surrender. And within moments, <laughs> the voice of the Spirit. And you know what it was? I had to confess the sin of feeling like I had nothing to confess. Because that's pride. Yeah, boy. I ain't got nothing to confess. Hey. <laughs> like. That's pride. You know what I mean? And what, you have, what I had to do in that instance, it's amazing. How, that's why you've got to read your Bible. Because David says, Lord, your word have I, sin in my, have, your word have I hid in my heart in order that I might not sin against you. And you know what? The verse, not that verse, I mean, that would have been a good one, but the, a verse come to me, and it was Psalm 139. And it was, Lord, search my heart. You search it. 
Because I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, man, I'm kind of looking and there ain't really nothing in there. Everything's all right. That's why David said, oh, is it Psalm 51? Sorry. David says, you know what, Lord? You search my heart. Because my heart is what? Um, Jeremiah. My heart is deceitful and wicked. Above all things, who can know it? Me, I can't know it. You, can't, you don't know even the wickedness of your own heart, the depths and the, the depravity of, of our own heart. That's why we have to say like David, Lord, thank you, sis, you search my heart. Because when I look and I search, I skip stuff. Big old blatant things that are there. But God doesn't, right? You know, if you're a Christian, you hear this stuff, you'd be like, Lord, forgive me, help me. Oh, go to that brother or that sister. I'm sorry, forgive me. I had to do it this morning. I had to go to a brother on bended knee and ask him to forgive me. But if you're not a genuine believer, this stuff is going to be like water for ducks back. And it's deceitful because you will amen everything that I just said. And you walk out and you, won't do a th- you will do nothing about it. You might oh, confess, oh Lord, forgive me. But that's all, that's all, it's all lip service. Jesus said, there are those who confess me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's why no one can't tell me nothing about the Bible, you know. Hebrews 4 says, God's word is sharp. It's scalpel, precision, sharp. And it gets to that point, that place. Even if they have to use microscopic surgery. God's word is like microscopic surgery. And it, gets right, and, it, and it gets right to that place in your heart where it says, look. And you see it. And you either say, oh, woe is me. I'm undone. Or you stiffen your neck. Guess what the Hebrew word for what Ananias and Sapphira are doing? The play acting. They're looking like they're one thing and they're not. Big smile on their face. But they've got, they got anger and resentment and hatred in their heart. Right? Guess what, the, guess what the, the Hebrew word for pretending, for play acting, for hypocrisy is? It's chameleon. I mean, if you know, a chameleon walks in, they're lizards, right? Chameleon lizard. Like, they walk in and everything's green. And you can't see them because they're green. But then they go into another kind of habitat, a different environment, and they don't want to be seen, they just change colors. And that which was green ain't green now, it's brown. You'd be like, huh? But guess what? It's the same chameleon. Let's not be found guilty of being chameleons, just changing according to our surroundings. Oh, hey, I'm with my boys from work on a Friday night down the pub. And I'm one thing. Chat back this, that, and the other. And then I come to church today, and like Wurzel Gummidge, I put on a different head. You remember, half of you in here don't know what I'm talking about. Don't be a chameleon. Just be, you know, just be yourself. No one ain't going to hate you. You know what? God will hate you if you don't be yourself. 
But if you be yourself, no one ain't going to hate you. Be like, you know what, bruv? I'm struggling with the same things myself. The same verse that I quoted, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, says, No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. Ain't nothing new. Everybody's going through it. And that's where the devil wants to deceive us. We're all sick and walking on crutches spiritually. Oh my goodness. Imagine if we we could just see each other spiritually. (laughs) That would just solve all the problems, isn't it? Blatantly, I can see what you are. I can see you coming just about on crutches. Two broken legs, isn't it? Big bandage around your head. (laughs) Broken arm. (laughs) Spiritually speaking. See, this is a problem for many, check it, this is a problem for many outside the church who won't come into the church. Some outside the church feel like they can't come into the church because they, they know how sick they are. And they don't want to come in because they don't want to be found to be hypocrites. I mean... So I remember when I used to go to my very, very old church and all the crazy stuff was going on, people bouncing off the walls. I mean, it was nuts up in the place. And I would be terrified to invite my friends because I knew anyhow I invite my friends and all this stuff starts jumping off, what are they going to do? They're going to do what I'm not being doing. They're going to be honest. They're going to go, what on earth is going on around here? You know what, bruv, later. If this is what you're... Later. And you're like... Why don't I just be honest and say, you're right, you know, this is madness. But because we play them games in church. We play them games. People don't want to come into the church, they'll be like, can't you see that that man, all, he wants to do, all he's doing is rinsing out your money? Bruv, can't you see that? Man, you're brainwashed, fam. It's bad when they say that we're brainwashed. You know what I'm saying? And it's, well, you know what? The stuff I'm washing my brains with is better than the stuff that you're washing your brains with, right? That's one thing. That's a good thing. But it's another thing when they walk in and they say, can't you see that? And we turn around and say, see see what? (laughs) See, even Gentiles who are not Christians, am I keeping you? You got something more, more important to do? All right, I'm nearly finished. See, because unbelievers outside, they don't want to be hypocrites. You know what? They have the fear of God. Or they have an element of the fear of God, right? Let's call a spade a spade. Let's be honest. It's twisted a lot of the time because sometimes on their part, it's just an excuse. I'm not coming to church. Church is full of hypocrites. It's true. But that's an excuse you're using because of the fact you don't want to put down your sin. All right, let's say, you know what? Actually, I go to a church where, no, nah, none of that don't really happen. For real. Nah. Oh, well, boy, you know what? Friday night, I'm going football. If, just just, just going to give me another excuse, right? Yet, this whole issue of hypocrisy in the church, at least they're doctrinally correct. Because it is true. Don't come in with your hypocrisy. And who wants to be around a bunch of people who are hypocrites? Who are one thing one minute and rot another thing the next. See, on the flip side, they are right. 
that so many in the church are hypocrites. And if we're not careful, if we're not very careful, if we're not honest, the church can become a breeding ground for hypocrisy. We reinforce that pretense. (laughs) Don't you hate them cheesy plastic smiles? You'd rather just somebody just say, I hate you. I don't like you. <laughs> yeah, no, you, are, you, can, you, can, you can work with that. Them cheesy plastic smiles. Yeah, no, done with the hype. See? How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing really well, man. But, you know, if you're doing good, great. But if you... But if you, if you say you are and you're not, you're lying. You're lying to your brother or sister. And more importantly, you're lying to God. Where's my remote control gone? Oh, here it is. In my excitement. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without what? Hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Check it. Abhor what is evil. Cling to that which is good. I mean, if we just put that one verse into practice. Oh my gosh. God help us. Isn't it? God help us. You know, Jeremiah says in the last days, they're going to call evil good. And they're going to call good evil. Let's not be guilty of that. Let's be honest and let's, abhor, let's identify evil for what it is and hate it, abhor it. Notice what Peter, or notice that Peter uses, as we wrap up, going back to Acts chapter 5. Notice that Peter uses the Holy Spirit in verse 3 and God in verse 4 synonymously. Indicating that the Holy Spirit is who? Amen. All right then. Indicating that the Holy Spirit is God. That's a good portion of scripture to use when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to visit you. Because they chat about the Holy Spirit is a force. Impersonal. He is not a, per- he is not a person. How does that even work? And I mean, that's a good, that's a good portion of text. Because you won't get a good answer from them on that. Verse 5 then. Ananias, hearing these words... He fell down and breathed his last. Check it. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Nothing long. Imagine if God was in an Acts chapter 5 type mood today. How many of us, notice us, how many of us would make it to the door? without being carried to the door. Remember, Acts will teach us important, and you may not have heard it when I, I've said it, three, I've said it twice, and it's the third time I'm going to say this now. Acts will teach us important lessons to learn, principles to apply, and warnings to heed. Now, how many of you know that sounds different this side of what we just talked about. 
This ain't not. Remember, it's not a spect- Christianity is not a spectator sport. Now, did I say we're wrapping up? Something else that is highlighted by this portion of text, I am about to wrap up, in view of the things that we ought not to do in terms of warnings to heed is when God does something, let's recognize that he has done it. But let's not make up and invent stuff that he doesn't. When these two individuals, as I said, Ananias and Sapphira, possibly believers, probably believers, when they were killed by God and undoubtedly lost their lives, check it, prematurely. You you can see that when you talk about 1 Corinthians 11 and breaking of bread. Careful how you take the Lord's Supper. Easy now. Careful. Because you might die early if you don't discern the Lord's body. Here's another example of Christians who lose their lives prematurely. And you know what? God killed them. God did it. God undeniably intervened and slew Ananias and Sapphira. Evidently by way of example. A warning to the church then... And now, verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This makes a farce of the practice of preachers pushing people over. How can you practice such heresy? Pushing people over, trying to boost your spiritual profile. Or hypnotically suggesting that someone ought to fall over when you pray for them. And then, and then call that being slain by the Spirit. Or being slain in the Spirit. To be, for crying out loud. To be slain means to be killed. I mean, you don't even have to go to the Greek for that. It's, un- it's unhelpful, it's irrational, it's ungodly, unbiblical behavior. And you, if you do this, if you're listening on MP3, on a website or some CD, if you're listening and you're making light of something so very serious, I fear for you. The invention of that term in that context is nothing less than a doctrine of demons. I know that's strong, but that's how I feel about it. This pushing people over thing is not good. And I can't believe that 12 years after being removed from that in a specific sense, it's still going on. I flick on the the quote-unquote Christian channels and I still see them knocking people over. Pushing people over. And it's sad that people allow themselves to be pushed over. It is it's sad, isn't it? It's one thing that people who are supposed to be in a position of responsibility are not teaching people. And it's, and it's another extreme of sadness when those poor people, some of them, they know it and they do it anyway. But some, they don't know. Like so many of us, when we got saved, walked into that environment and thought, 
hey, well, rah, it's a bit scary, but whoa, this is church. You know what I mean? The invention of that term, in my opinion, in that context is nothing less than a doctrine of demons. Its origination is with the devil himself, causing people to be, I just need to go up. Why? Because I need a touch from the man of God. I tell you, historically speaking, the church had an issue with leadership and what they call the laity. The leadership and the laity. That division was apparent in, Old Test in the Old Testament scriptures where you had the priests. And if you sinned, you had to come to the priest in order to get your sins forgiven. Right? When Jesus came, he done away with the separation of priesthood and laity. We are a community now of believers. We're all priests unto God. 1 Peter 2. And when individual, now when we look at the Catholic Church, you're like, hey, I know that they're off key. Not the people, but the doctrine, right? The priests. Same thing. What did they do? Just like the, the, the priests in a Roman Catholic Church, they give you the impression that you need to come to them to get your sins forgiven. You go into the confession. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. What have you done, my son? My son. And you tell them, and then they say, okay, say five our fathers and six Hail Marys. And people walk out of their feeling, my sins have been forgiven. And what has happened? They've put, they've, they've, they've torn apart that which Jesus had created. And they recreate the breach between man and God. By putting the priest in place of Christ, who is our great high priest. And you know what they do? They do exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did when Jesus died on the cross and a temple veil was rent in two. Remember? From top to bottom, indicating it was God that tore that curtain. And the curtain was the veil that separated people from coming into the presence of God. And he was saying, no, it's not there. And you know what the Jews done? You know what the scribes and the high priest done? They stitched it back up. And I'm telling you, this business about I need to go and get a touch from the man of God. It's evil. Because you don't need to come to the front. You don't need to come and get a touch from me, Patrick or Ephraim. You can go straight to your high priest. His name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. We cannot manufacture two sentences. We cannot manufacture, or three, we cannot manufacture the true work of the Spirit. What we need is not for people to fall, but for the fear of God to fall. That's what we need. That's what we need. May the church stop trying to manufacture the power of God. May the church cease acting. May the church stop pretending. May we, Christ's body, a communion of believers, a fellowship, may we as a church halt and not hide behind hypocrisy. Because, because you know what, when we stop doing that, that is actually going to be the catalyst that would spark and ignite the power of God. 
We don't have to try and manufacture it or pretend. We need more men and women like Mark Driscoll. If you want to know who he is, MarsHillChurch.com. We need more men and women filled with the Spirit of God like Peter. Amen? Next week we'll continue in chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we constantly are exposed to your word which is able to teach us and instruct us. Scripture says the entrance of your word gives light and brings and gives understanding to the simple. Only problem is, Lord, we take a bit of time to unpack it. And for that, I ask you to forgive me, Lord. I pray that you'd help those of us who teach, all of us who teach, to be able to communicate your word, Lord, in power, but, Lord, also in brevity. And that's going to take a work of your spirit. But, Lord, as we sit down and absorb all that has been said, not particularly by me, but what you've been saying between the lines by your spirit to us, even to the speaker. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we begin. Oh, it's a process that leads to, Lord, that you'd help us to get, that, that, that we'd grasp that and that we'd learn from that, Lord. That we wouldn't just live and learn, oh, but that we would learn and then live. You've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's what the scripture says. And Father, we need, we need more of the fear of God. And we thank you because, Lord, that's what's indicated as we look at chapter 5. That we can't take your word for granted. That we can't take one another for granted. We can't take you for granted. And feel that we can sin even as small, quote-unquote, as it may seem, as a lie, because you are very serious about sin. And we, Lord, can become flippant. And like it says in Peter, we can get to the point where we forget that we were cleansed from our sins because we're short-sighted, because we can't see. Lord, anoint our eyes, I pray, with eyesalf today and help us to see and help us to hear, Lord, what you have to say to us through your word by your spirit lord we commit ourselves to you in the name of jesus and thank you for his sake amen amen